Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 325 The Politics of Dualism. We're joined this week by political author and Buddhist practitioner Matt Bieber to explore his reflections on being in Washington as a speechwriter and political intern. This is part one of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today over Google Hangout with our special guest of today, Matt Bieber. Matt. Great to have you on the show, and uh, thanks for joining us from, is it Vietnam that you're staying in right now? Yep, I'm in Saigon, Vietnam. Awesome. So if our internet connection gets a little choppy, you'll understand why. Um, this is a bit of a, a stretch in terms of you know distance. Um, I don't think you can get really much further than you know uh, North Carolina and Saigon, um, So, but it should be totally fine. So yeah, anyway, just want to introduce Matt a little bit before we jump into the topic, which is the politics of Buddha nature. Um, so Matt is a political author, writer. He writes at thewheatandchaff.com, some very interesting articles of his own, as well as interviews with very interesting folks, um, and is also a Buddhist practitioner and has studied, uh, t- tell me a little bit about your background in the Buddhist world. I know, I know you told me a bit about your teacher, but maybe you could share with, with the rest of us kind of what, what your interest is there and what you've been up to. Sure. So I had been at the Kennedy School uh, studying for a public policy master's and uh, was just a bit frustrated with the speed of the whole learning environment and realized that I wanted a space in which I could sort of slow down and think a little bit more clearly and precisely about a whole bunch of ethical questions related to community and individual development. So I uh, applied to a second program at Harvard Divinity School began studying there. And while there, um, on a lark, actually, just to fulfill a requirement, began taking a course on Buddhist ethics. In that class, I met a friend, a a guy who's become a best friend named John Winter. And we quickly became close. He quickly began sharing a great deal about his own study and path. And I was enamored of mostly just talking with him and sort of exploring sets of questions that it turned out we both shared. Um, at some point, he introduced me to his teacher, Lee Ray, who is, uh, was a student of Chogyam Trungpa and uh, lives in Boulder, Colorado. I went out and visited a few times and, and began considering her my teacher and have been practicing under her for, I guess, the better part of two years now. So in the, in the lineage of Chogyam Trungpa. Okay. You know, one of the things that you mentioned um, on, your, on your blog and one of the articles that I, I really enjoyed reading uh, was about your experience, um, this is now on the political side, of being an intern at the White House and doing some speech writing for uh, Vice President Joe Biden. And that was quite interesting because you, in describing what it was like, I felt like you did a pretty good job at at not pulling any punches, at being honest about what, what it was like to be a speechwriter and how those speeches were handled. And I was wondering if you could share a bit about, you know, like kind of the gems, um, you know, from that experience. Because I think you know, for most of us, we have really no sense of what that world is like, um, except through, you know, 
through the way that it's portrayed, you know, on television or online, you know, through the New York Times, or whatever. So sure. you know, maybe you could tell us what it's like in the belly of the beast. <laughs> well, I think the single most shocking thing to me was how few layers there were between me and a finalized speech. Um, the president, at least at the time I was there, had seven speechwriters. Uh, the vice president had one. And that meant that because I was working for the vice president's speechwriter, I would get essentially the runoff. And I don't mean that critically, but, you know, he's a busy guy. So I would, uh, I would at some point early on, began to get to write speeches and was really shocked at how at least the, the low profile speeches were often approved with almost no editing. And that's not to say people weren't scrupulous uh, about what got said, it, but it's just to say that everyone was very busy and apparently what I wrote passed muster. And I was sh sort of shocked because I was writing from my heart. I was basically seeing what I could try to, or I was often curious about what I could get away with. I wanted to speak as, as earnestly and honestly as I could, um, not to, not to you know, ask him to misrepresent himself or anything like that, but to to kind of inject ideas into the discourse and sort of see whether the, the staff would allow them to get approved. And oftentimes they were, which was, um, but then, of course the flip side of that is um, getting a finalized speech you know, into his hands didn't necessarily mean that he actually read it at the podium. He's a, you know, as everyone knows, is, is sort of famous for his improvisations and um, you know, he's, the, he's the boss. So there was that too. So sometimes you're, what you got into his hands just wouldn't be, he wouldn't use it. Yeah, there were a couple, the first couple of speeches I wrote for him, um, I, you know, I remember um, I was so excited. I went to the auditorium to watch the speeches and, um, you know, he, he unfolded the, the, the speech. And the first thing he said, the first thing he said was, um, you know, my staff has prepared some very lovely remarks, but uh, I think, you know, I think I'm, I'd like to say some other things. He just folded the speech back up um, put it back in his pocket and then winged it essentially for the next 40 minutes. And, uh, you know, and that was just part and parcel of, of how it went. Um, I went back and, and, you know, shared that with, uh, with my boss, the speechwriter. <laughs> you know, he, he'd obviously been through it a bunch of times, so it wasn't a big surprise to him. Gotcha. And, you know, another thing you mentioned in that article, which I thought was, it made sense to hear it, but it's, it's one thing to, to kind of suspect this is the case. It's another to hear a first person description is you were describing, you know, the, the, the nature of the hierarchy and the way that power works on Capitol mm -hmm. Hill. And I wondered if you could say, not just in terms of also, you know, popular people you see on TV, but also in terms of the whole hierarchy, you know, beneath that person, you know, aides and all that. Could you say a bit about that? Yeah, I've, I've never been in an environment um, that was that self-conscious of rank in which everyone knew where they stood. You know, this is a huge organization, even the White House itself. Um, forget all the federal agencies that the president oversees, but just the White House complex itself is, you know, a great many buildings with a great many offices. And it, it really felt like status was both incredibly fine-grained, but also incredibly um, visible, incredibly uh, legible, I guess. And that's not to say, I don't mean to say that people were mean or that they threw their weight around or, um, you know, treated and treat, you know, that I didn't see anyone treated badly or anything like that. But it was bizarre to me how, how everyone seemed aware of proximity of how much power they were close to. The, the anecdote that I used in the story or in the essay was, um, was the photos that were on the wall. 
Um, so basically everywhere throughout the White House complex, there are these huge framed, you know, two and a half or three feet by two feet, say, photos of the president, the vice president, um, often with other people around. And at a certain point, I began, it began, it became striking, like, do we really need to be reminded? You know, we know, everybody knows we work for these guys. Um, do, do we need them sort of looking down from every wall? And I don't, you know, I don't mean, that's not a sort of um, a backhanded or sort of sly way of, of critiquing them for, I mean, this is a standard practice in White House is just to have these photos up. But it, it struck me as reinforcing a kind of closed and inward looking and perhaps defensive and self-protective mentality, um, as opposed to what I thought would perhaps have been a more useful um, set of reminders, you know, a picture of a struggling family in a in a, a city on the slide or someone, an activist on the march that we felt in solidarity with, something like that. There's something about that constant reminder that we're the White House, we're the president, we're the White House, we're the president, that felt like it was reinforcing unhealthy uh, attitudes more than it was helping motivate. Okay, okay. Now, I can't help but ask this question because as you're describing that, you know, the question that comes to mind is like, how is that different from the Buddhist communities out there? I mean, granted, not all of them are the same, not all of them are the White House, but, you know, what you're describing, you know, I, I've seen that play out at several places, you know, where you've got pictures of the guru all over the place staring at you from every wall and a kind of unhealthy, you know, separation and a hyper awareness of the pecking order, you know, who's a senior student and who's, you know, a junior student. Um, just curious, you know, would you, would you, would you say maybe some of that observation could be, uh, you know, applied toward, toward the religious uh, space as well? I'm sure it could. Um, I've only been, I've been in a smaller number of communities than you have. And so the one, the really the only one that I have extensive experience with um, is not, I think has probably fewer of those challenges than, than others. But I, I also think there's a substantive difference, uh, at least in a lot of cases, um, which is to say that at its best, the Buddhist tradition and the tradition of the teacher or the guru, depending on which tradition you're talking about, is not meant to be looked up to or worshipped or, um, you know, kowtowed to um, as as sort of an entity in and of themselves so much as, uh, as, as, as a vessel for the teachings themselves so that these teachers become revered um, at their best because they faithfully transmit something that's deep and true and abiding and, and helpful to people. I think politics is a little different in that because it's so combative, because it's so zero sum, loyalty gets expressed or gets, um, the loyalty that I saw expressed there was toward a man and toward a leader. Um, but what he said on any given day might change, you know, given the vicissitudes of the politics that he, he was dealing with, given what his opponents were doing. I wouldn't say that it was quite the same, that it represented quite the same fidelity to a set of constant permanent teachings um, and I think because it doesn't, it ends up inevitably tending a little bit more toward personality worship than than it necessarily might in Buddhist communities. Okay, okay, that's a. I think that's a an optimistic assessment of Buddhist communities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, I've been I've been pretty pleased in the community that I'm in. So yeah. I, you know, I've heard the horror stories too. So I don't want to make any blanket uh, you know distinctions between the world of polit politics and the world of Buddhism for sure. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that's fair because in in the Buddhist world, or in the you could even say now in the emerging mindfulness world, which is which is somewhat different but also related, 
Um, there are so many different, you know, kind of small communities that are operating almost in isolation and have very different structures and politics and, um, and hierarchies and all of that. So, um, mm-hmm. but you know, some of the traditional ones, I think, you know, they have a lot of the characteristics you're describing, maybe not the, the constant flip-flopping of views, um, but, but definitely some of the, some of the idolization. Yeah. Um, cool. So, you know, let's get into the politics of, um, Buddha nature. And what I mean by that is, you know, one of the things that you're really interested in and are writing about and are exploring is this notion of bringing to bear, you know, the teachings on and the understanding of Buddha nature to the political sphere um, Mm -hmm. and seeing how that might impact or change, you know, the nature of politics. And I guess before I ask, the obvious question, which is like, well, how does that work? I, I first maybe should ask, what do you mean by um, Buddha nature? Right. So I've been realizing as my own reading has um, expanded that when I talk comfortably about Buddha nature within my own tradition, it's, it's pretty different doing so outside the bounds of those of that uh, of that uh, Tibetan tradition. So what I mean by that is um, a basic goodness. Uh, a basic compassion and openness and awareness and responsiveness to suffering. Um, the kind of thing that doesn't require conceptualization, um, but knows what to do and how to do it prior to conceptualization. And that's something that I um, have a fairly strong notion is, is, in, is in all of us uh, at some level, buried perhaps fairly deep down, but in there nonetheless. Okay, so it's sort sort of something that's there, but you you know have to. It's obscured is the kind of way I've heard it talked about, you know, in the Tibetan tradition. Like it's it's like the sun behind the clouds, and you kind of have to you know figure out how to how to peer behind those things. Yeah, something like that. That there's um, that there's all this ego activity on top. There's all this uh, confusion and ignorance. Um, there's all this effort to perpetuate ourselves and to get what we want and you know, all the traditional hamster wheel spinning in samsara, but that, but that right underneath, uh, there's a wiser part of us that, that is at least marginally aware that of the silliness of the game that we're playing and, and wants out and wants something better, both for ourselves and for others. Cool. And what's your experience with this? <laughs> so here's where I have to just issue all my caveats right out of the gate. Um, you know, pretty minimal, to be honest with you, but also, um, but, but also s- mm, substantive enough to give me, to give me confidence um, for, the, for somebody like me, you know, and I imagine a lot of your, at least some portion of your listeners are the same, you're really analytical people that have often put a lot of faith in book learning and uh, logic and analysis. It's been a real shock to be exposed to a set of teachings that basically says the best parts of you may work in tandem with all those things, but are also, um, are also different. Are also, um, that your compassion, uh, is sort of there ready to act, um, beneath all of that and doesn't really require the assistance of, of your analytical mind. That's, that's all really shocking stuff for me, but it's also stuff that I've gotten some glimpses of over the past couple of years, both in myself through, uh, my own practice and through encountering people who, um, Namely, my namely my teacher, but uh, others of her students who are present to others, um, care for others, and are capable of dealing really skillfully with others in a way that is really beyond anything I've ever seen anywhere else. Uh, and so, 
that gives me some faith too. Okay, gotcha. So, um, what what had you want to start kind of taking this experience and idea and kind of thinking about how it might impact politics? Like, was there a certain was there a particular moment that you started thinking that, or was it sort of from the very beginning you just kind of saw saw the way that those two might might interact? Well, as you as you alluded to before our conversation, you know, I've been a I think it's totally fair to say a political junkie all my life and a frustrated one um, because I've I've found myself both drawn to politics and all the possibility that it has to do good and make meaningful differences in in people's lives. And, you know, also frustrated by the ways that it seems to consistently go bad. Um, So I've been thinking about this sort of thing for quite a while and, you know, had had. studied a lot of Gandhi, studied a lot of Martin Luther King, uh, studied the best that I could find, uh, the best teachers that I could find in, in, our, in our politics um, for clues as to what, what kinds of failures, what kinds of consistent mistakes we might be making that would, that would render a politics of so much possibility uh, so often moot or, or um, kind of neutralize the, all the good it might do. To me, learning about the clashes, learning about the basic... Uh, you know, Buddhist, uh, according to the Buddhist view, the old unwholesome states of mind um, really came as a revelation and a, a sort of a, a fresh wind of clarity in my thinking about this stuff. Um, you know, as you know, the, the, we have this idea that um, ignorance, attachment, and aversion, uh, or if you're in a different tradition, delusion, greed, and hatred form a kind of triumvirate of nasty states of mind that foul up our relationships with ourselves and others and create all sorts of uh, painful situations in the world. And, and as you know, these are uh, ideas that are, they're sort of like the triune God in, in Christianity. They're uh, both separable and, you know, we can think about them separately and think about them separately, but we can also recognize that they all come from a common source, which is uh, the mistake of dualism, of imagining that we're all separate selves running around and that the best we can do and all we can ever really hope to do is sort of look after ourselves and try to defend ourselves against others. And, and the more I started thinking about this and reading about it and receiving teachings about it, it started to become fairly clear to me that the stuff that the Buddhist world is most wary of, these kleshas, is exactly the stuff that our politics is built on. Our politics isn't worried about dualism. It's not worried about greed. It's not worried about uh, hatred and aversion. It's actually positively built on these things in a lot of ways uh, and affirms them positively as uh, as goals to be pursued and as ideals to be sought. And when I realized that, or when I began to think that that might be the case, I thought, my goodness, we are, we've got the world literally turned upside down. Okay, interesting. And, you know, this is something I've heard, not, not with respect to politics, um, you know, from another guest, but, but in terms of institutions. You know, we were talking to uh, David Loy, and he, he talked about many large institutions, uh, in particular, like, large corporations, for instance, are sort of institutionalizing these core places. Um, it sounds like you're saying something similar about your experience of, of the political institution. I am, and I'm in particular referring to um, the, the rhetoric that burns um, the sort of rhetorical boundaries of our contemporary political discourse, and also the political philosophical tradition out of which our contemporary situation emerges. So that would be the the major thinkers in the Western liberal philosophical tradition. Um, if you look at, the, at many of them, um, particularly the post-Enlightenment thinkers, 
And if you also look at the, found, the basic premises that are shot through our contemporary discourse, it's pretty clear that for the most part, we all take for granted that um, we are atomistic, fairly atomistic individuals, um, and that um, seeking our own interests, pursuing our own interests will naturally bring us into deep and perhaps irremediable conflict with others. Um, and that the best, and this is what's really depressing to me, that the best we can hope to do um, from a political, organizational, structural perspective is manage that conflict with a minimum of, of actual violence. Um, to my mind, that sets the, the ambitions incredibly low. Uh, it, it sets the bar incredibly low. All we're, all we've, the best we can hope to do is stay away from each other's throats. And that, I think the Buddhist tradition and the Buddhist insights about, about psychology offer genuine reason for hope that much more than that is possible. Okay. Okay, this is where it gets interesting because um, I'm totally with you on that. And at the same time, I think it's fair to say, like, if we look back through history, you know, at different Buddhist cultures, um, it's not the case so much that they've, you know, that we have any clear and shining examples of, you know, of a Buddhist culture that's been able to, like, um, deal with the complexities of modern life and at the same time bring forth some of these deeper values. So I guess the question is, you know, what what is it within Buddhism that could be applied, you know, to the political sphere, change the way we're thinking? Um, like, is there a particular Buddhist philosophical, you know, uh, Buddhist po political kind of idea that, that's out there that seems really promising? Or are there any models? Or, you know, kind of what do you look for to, you know, in terms of, in terms of hope of actually um, implementing something like that, like actually seeing it become real as opposed to, um, you know, more, more of a kind of uh, nice idea, I guess. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, before I try to answer it, I want to ask you one. Um, sure. And that is, what do you see as distinctive about the challenges of modern life that might require a different or more sophisticated application of these principles than might have been necessary in the past? Um, I, I definitely, several things come to mind. One is, um, the hyper connectivity and the way that we interface with technology constantly. Um, mm -hmm. and what comes out of that is a very different experience. I think of being human, um, at least it has been for me, even since the internet, you know, came, came online. Um, uh, I think the other thing, like you're saying is that it's the very framework that we're in, you know, we're in this, like you said, atomistic individualistic society you know where that is kind of from the very beginning that's kind of the idea that you have of who you are and, and what the world is um, and also you know there's other invisible kinds of structures like um, you know our economic structures um, that were vastly different than than anything that buddhist philosophy came out of um, and, and those are all sort of things that are taken for granted and i think change you know probably in a lot of ways how we interact with the world um, you know, we're, we're, we're maybe more consumers than we are, you know, humans, uh, first in a lot of cases, a lot of contexts, um, though, they're not in private usually. Um, I don't know. Those are, those are some of the things that come to mind as being kind of different about the modern world. Um, fair enough. So let me dive into some of that. Um, yeah, please. The first thing I'd say is that I, I'm not well-versed enough in, uh, Asian history, Buddhist history, to, to feel comfortable offering an example of, um, of a society where they've really nailed it and gotten it right. Mm -hmm. um, and in a way, I think that's okay, because the, I think that, and I don't think this is where you were coming from or anything like that, but 
um, from a more skeptical audience, that's often that there's um, you might you might offer that question uh, from a more skeptical perspective or even more dismissive perspective and say, um, "Hey, look, uh, you know, has anyone ever actually been successful in applying this stuff?" And let's suggest, let's say the answer is no, that nobody's ever gotten it totally right um, or even implemented this this stuff in the main. Um, I, I think I'd still want to say there's still a lot of reason to think about it because if we're at all honest with ourselves, we're very we're very aware of the the profound challenges that we face societally and, and individually, and we know a lot of a lot of it isn't working. A lot of the ideology and dogma that that um, undergirds our our society uh, isn't sort of uh, all it's up all it's cracked up to be. Um, so that there might be a great deal of wisdom that we could. Um, that we could apply and, uh, and improve on, on the situation we're in. Um, a couple more specific points. Um, I, I absolutely agree that um, there's nothing, we've never seen anything like the, um, the speed, the speediness, the sheer pace of, of life um, as, as compared to the way it's lived today. Um, I do think though that some of the challenges that come with, um, with contemporary life do have antecedents in um, even as long ago as say 100 or 150 years ago, with the dawn of the Industrial Revolution and uh, and then really truly mass societies and mass institutions, um, we had this sort of more atomistic, uh, fragmented, even a fully anonymous uh, sort of way of life in which um, people fully depended on on people they would never meet and couldn't possibly interact with in a in a direct way, and so. You know what we're dealing with now, I think, is a is a much fuller expression, but it's it's a version of the same challenge we've known for some time. I think, and I'm glad you alluded to economics because I think that ideology or that um, that way of being in the world, in which we basically look after ourselves, take care of our own, and um, often forget everybody else, is manifest most fully in our contemporary economic thinking, where we are. I, I mean, I, I went and I was I was flabbergasted to be taught a, a version of economics that's completely mainstream in which the fundamental premises are, uh, are just nakedly absurd, in which people are described as completely self-seeking, um, in which people are described as totally rational decision makers, perfectly transparent, their desires are perfectly transparent to them and they're perfectly capable of sort of seeking them in an accurate and effective way. Um, I mean, they basically tell you our discipline, much of our discipline is built on, on these assumptions and we kind of recognize that they're questionable, um, but we're not going to really pay any attention to that. We're just going to speed right along ahead and, and into the models. That's fine, maybe, if you keep in mind that what you're doing is a purely academic exercise that might illustrate something about the functioning of an economy, but probably tells you very little about how actual human beings work and live and achieve satisfaction. The trouble is when that distinction gets lost, and it, it basically almost always does in public discourse. And this is, this is something that's been irking me for quite a while that I've been trying to call attention to. Um, the vision of a human being that is um, proffered and um, by you know, contemporary economic lights um, is completely, uh, not completely, but almost, in completely, almost completely vacuous, um, has nothing to do with human beings that you and I have ever met um, or would want to meet for that matter. And because economics and contemporary economics, economic thinking is so powerful. It is such a driver for, um, of, of politics. It's such a major part of our politics. It seems to me really crucial that we get it right, that we get a vision of a human being right, 
if it's going to be um, such a primary part of our discourse. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.